I was living in a devil town. Didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Welcome to the Devil's Junkie Podcast. I'm your host, Ralph Amsden, and I am excited about the show that we have planned for you today. We have Hode Rubino, publisher of devilsdigest.com, who will be here uh, to talk about some recent interesting developments with Arizona State's football roster. Uh, Justin Toscano, staff writer with Devil's Digest, also interning at sports360az.com, who has closely followed ASU's baseball program, which is in a state of flux right now. Uh, and, and, and he'll bring his perspective and what he's seen over the course of the season, uh, as well as uh, he, he attended Bobby Hurley's press conference today. So we'll get his take on the state of ASU basketball. And I'm really excited to have Speak of the Devil's co-host Joe Healy on to talk about some of the previews that he's been writing for devilsdigest.com, getting into Arizona State's upcoming season, um, their out-of-conference matchups with teams like New Mexico State, Texas Tech, San Diego State, as well as some of the conference previews uh, that, that he's written that I've really enjoyed. And So we'll get into a little bit about his research process, what he looks for, some of the things that have stood out to him, and whether or not he thinks that Arizona State has a harder road this year as compared to previous seasons. So let's get right into it. These are interesting times to be an Arizona State sports fan. I mean, you absolutely have to love what women's golf did in bringing home a title. Uh, but what most people are, are tuning in for is to hear news about the big three. Uh, you know, they, they want to hear about football. They want to hear about baseball. They want to hear about basketball. Uh, you know, if it was up to me, I'd, I'd dedicate as much time as possible to talking about Charlie Turner Thorne and what she has going uh, with ASU women's basketball. It's absolutely one of my favorite programs, one of my favorite coaches, one of my favorite rosters, and I think they're in for absolutely huge things next year. But uh, what people are interested in is whether or not ASU football can recover from two losing seasons and what it means that they're losing so much roster talent. We'll get into that in a moment. People want to know if Bobby Hurley's the real deal and if year three is going to bring some tournament magic. People want to know if Coach Tracy Smith can turn this around, and quite a few people don't believe that he can and feel like it's time for Ray Anderson to move on, uh, which which we've learned probably isn't going to happen. So definitely interesting times with the bigger sports, Arizona State University, and want to talk a little bit about what's going on with football. It's It's been an absolutely wild ride uh, with, with Todd Graham as head coach of Arizona State. He came in cleaned up discipline problems that existed under Dennis Erickson, helped fence in the state of Arizona to some extent, didn't land a lot of the big guys early on, but has managed to, to keep some talent at home. Uh, but also we've seen uh, deterioration of, uh, of an ability to stop anybody on defense, um, health issues, player defections, uh, some, some players getting into trouble, uh, and it's 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 just been a really really interesting time for the last couple of years, coupled with the fact that they haven't been able to be over 500, uh, has a lot of fans wondering what it's going to take to get Arizona State to that next level. That's something that we talked about on last week's podcast, and and you know mentioned that they're really going to need to rely heavily on a guy like Kareem Moore, who all of a sudden we find out 
has decided uh, to transfer, be closer to home, and 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 attend UT Chattanooga. Now, this may have felt like it came out of left field uh, for a lot of people. You know, Kareem Moore. Um, was really probably the person that you felt like you could depend on most. And the cornerback position is really going to come down to whether Chase Lucas and Maurice Chandler were going to take over at the other corner spot. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's been, um, it's been widely uh, reported um, now that uh, the, and Cream Moore actually gave an interview to his hometown newspaper stating that he is expecting a baby in August and, 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 and wants to be closer to home. That article's, also quoted his high school coach um, talking about you know him possibly wanting to transfer even prior to last season and, and that distance uh, had been an issue from him. Uh, program sources also speak to uh, other circumstances existing um, that that resulted in Arizona State not being an option for Kareem or um, at this time, and so multiple factors come into play. Arizona State ends up losing somebody they had, you know, inked in in permanent marker as a starter heading into the the 2017 season, uh, and and that comes on the heels of Armand Perry, um, probably you know one one of the players that I I most believed needed to uh, needed to be the leader of the defense last year coming off of injury in order for ASU to step up and have more success. It turns out he spent a lot of last year doing what he did the year prior, just battling injury after injury after injury. Um, I heard whispers back in early February that he was considering hanging it up for good, and he made, he made that official. He's going to medically retire from football, and that's somebody at the field safety position that, that Arizona State expected huge things out of. And, you know, if, if you're just a fan of really good football stories, you wanted to see him have the opportunity to play with his younger brother, Alex, who is committed uh, to Arizona State University from the 2017 class and is going to come in and play some cornerback. So um, one Perry out, one perhaps in, uh, as ASU needs immediate help at cornerback with the defection of Kareem Moore. Um, all of that combined with Robbie Robinson moving on leaves Arizona State's defensive back unit in a really precarious situation that we're going to have Hode Rubino Devil's Digest on to talk a little bit more about what all of that means. Now, the the instant reaction to something like that, knowing what ASU has on its roster and knowing what the statistical output has been uh, for the past few years, it's you know it's it's not great. You're you're saying you know the the it's like having a garden full of weeds with maybe one or two uh, vegetables, and and you know you're plucking the only vegetables and you're only leaving me with weeds, and and, and the truth is you know. Those were optimistically looked at as vegetables. This is a situation where you know Arizona State could improve um, simply by doing nothing other than adding Phil Bennett to the to the staff. I mean, it's very possible uh, that that in the last two years they've been so bad that that even a a different coach or a different voice could have. Uh, an effect even with lesser talent available to him uh, that had not been achieved with a higher level of talent, um, including great players, you know, in my opinion, like great Sun Devils like Lloyd Carrington, um, 
you know, it, but it, it, and, and Jordan Simone, you know, it hadn't been achieved over the last couple of years. And so, um, what is, you know, I hope Rubino will make that point later in the podcast. What is ASU losing really? Um, you know, is there, can you go further down from where they were at? But still it, it, it was, you know, they're, they're two legitimately promising players that have left the program. In addition to Robbie Robinson, who flashed some talent and ability, um, as far as a nickel position as well. And, and so it'll be interesting to have hold on it a little bit to talk about where ASU goes from here and which players are going to step up to, to fill those roles, but the, the road just gets a little bit harder for Arizona State football to get back on the path. Um, one of the things that I've been paying attention to is is Hoderbino uh, has been putting out his interviews with some of the coaches on on DevilsDigest.com, and I'm I'm most interested in some of the new coaches uh, that are coming in and in hearing what they have to say and how they possibly portray themselves. Uh, a little bit differently than maybe their predecessors. Uh, and one of those interviews um, that, that I, I found particularly interesting was the post-spring Q&A uh, on devilsdigest.com with Billy Napier, offensive coordinator, former wide receivers coach at Alabama, former offensive coordinator at Clemson. Um, he, he had some really interesting quotes, and I think overall the way that he comes off in his conversation with Hode is somebody who takes a lot of personal responsibility as far as what goes on in a program that he helps to manage. You know, that might be something that he learned at, at Alabama. It might just be his personality uh, in general. But and, I, and I'm not saying that Chip Lindsey wasn't that way, but it was interesting this week to read an article where, you know, Chip Lindsey talked about his year at Arizona State and sort of how shell-shocked he was um, just a, about all of the injuries um, that Arizona State underwent and sort of the, the, the string of misfortunes that they ran into. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that Billy Napier is in a situation where he, and, and he might be benefiting from the year that Chip Lindsey had under Todd Graham and just understanding that anything can happen, but he's really come into this situation trying to take ownership for the fact that everybody needs to improve, everybody needs to work to get better, and everybody has to be ready at any given time, um, one of the one of the things that I found interesting was when uh, Hode asked him. You know, he said every coach is going to say I'm coming over the new slate, but as you said a second ago, you did some research before that first spring practice. How much did you or did you not take 2016 into account to at least make an initial determination of the players' capabilities? And what Billy Napier had to say. Um, you know, he quoted his former boss, Nick Saban, and said, you're either coaching it or you're allowing it to happen. He said he came in, he defined expectations, and he just told him, you know, it's it's really about meeting them, you know, and, and what he brings to the table is, you know, he's got a pretty level personality, um, you know, and he says it himself that, he, you know, he'll tell you when you're doing good and he'll tell you when you're just being average. Um, but I, I don't think he's coming in in a situation where, any amount of misfortune could surprise him, and I think he's going to help Arizona State prepare maybe in a way uh, that they hadn't before and, and, and maybe in a way that all of the players have really been uh, awoken to the fact that they do need to prepare in this way because anybody's number could be called at any given time. Just a couple of days ago, you know, Chase Lucas thought he was battling Maurice Chandler for a starting cornerback spot opposite Kareem Moore. Now Chase Lucas is in a situation as a redshirt freshman who just learned the cornerback position where he's going to have to be depended on for the entire season to produce 
to shut down some big play wide receivers from all over the Pac-12 uh, and, and is going to be thrown in the fire against teams like Texas Tech early on, you know, who do nothing but throw the ball. And so yeah, anything can change in, in, in any given situation. And so um, that was one of the quotes I found really interesting from, from Billy Napier. The other, thing, uh, the other thing that I found interesting, and it's possible that I'm reading between the lines a little bit too much here, is that Hoderbino asked Billy Napier about the quarterback battle, and, and that's going to be the thing that people are most interested in, and Hode even acknowledged you know, that you know, this is going to be something that everybody's talking about. Uh, um, and Billy Napier kind of, you know, gave answers, non-answers. Um, but but he did mention that he felt like Blake Barnett improved and Manny stayed the same. Um, and now, now you have to understand that when he says that, he's saying that Manny's a guy who acts like the starter because he has been the starter, he has experience, he has that demeanor. Whereas Blake Barnett's coming in without a lot of experience, and 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 every rep that he gets, you're going to be able to you know coach him and have him improve in certain areas. But I, I did find that to be a little bit interesting because there is a way that you can look that at that and say that somebody who really did need to improve in Manny Wilkins has possibly been stagnant while somebody else is you know is gaining on his heels but at the same time he did make it a point to talk about the fact that Blake Barnett is lacking in experience where Manny um where Manny does have that um uh, super interesting uh take that he had on on incoming quarterback Ryan Kelly um here's his quote from that that interview that you can find on devilsdigest.com Ryan's a local guy who got banged up his senior year with the shoulder and all that but he's a good athlete he's got arm talent you just never know about these kids a lot of it is going to do with what type of commitment a guy has what is his makeup what's his approach but obviously he took his commitment here and he's going to be here in the summer and I'm excited to work with him he seems like a good kid and he'll be a product of his choices and decisions when he gets here so that to me that that feedback he gave about a quarterback who's not even on campus yet tipped the hand of Billy Napier and who he is going to be as a coach uh, as much as anything in in this article and in this interview did he puts the responsibility on the players to seize the opportunities that they have. A lot of it is going to do with what type of commitment a guy has. What is his makeup? He seems like a good kid, and he'll be a product of his choices and decisions when he gets here. So ultimately, it is up to you to show up, take it seriously, be in love with football, take advantage of the opportunities that you're given, get better, be committed, be loyal, you know, I think if you can be those things in Billy Napier's eyes, you're somebody who can contribute to an offense that he helps to put together. So make sure you check those out. Billy Napier two-part interview up on devilsdigest.com. There were definitely some other interesting interviews um, with, with some of the coaching staff. Uh, wide receivers coach Rob Likens, um, you know, who is somebody I'm really interested in, in what his relationship with Nikhil Harry will be like. Can he push him to the next level? You know, Rob Likens comes off as, you know, kind of a, a kind of a, a buddy, buddy demeanor when it comes to the, the wide receivers. And, you know, I, I wonder if that'll be something that can push Nikhil to the next level or if he needs, you know, more of a disciplinarian, more of somebody like Jay Norville. But uh, that's something I'm absolutely fascinated by. But the one thing that stood out to me from that interview wasn't about Nikhil Harry at all. It was about Terrell Chapman. Uh, Hoda asked uh, 
about Terrell Chapman and, and brought up the fact that, that Todd Graham had called him one of the most improved players. And Todd Graham is not one to hold back compliments. He'll mention good things that players have done who never have any chance of seeing the field. You know, but if he sees someone do something well and, and he can give their ego a little boost through the media, he will never hesitate to do that. And so Hode points out that, you know, this is somebody that Todd Graham has mentioned. You know, what do you think of him? And Rob Lichen says, if you ask me what do I want to see in an outside receiver, it's someone with his body type. He's fast, he's long, his catch radius is huge, uh, and, and he needs to gain weight and work harder in, in, in the weight room, and that's something that he's working on. Um, so no surprises there. But, but then he goes on to say this. There were days out there he was our best wide receiver. He would flash that much on certain days. And I'm not telling you anything I haven't already told Terrell to his face. He just needs to bring that mindset every day. So this was a player I think that some ASU fans potentially had written off as getting buried in the influx of talent. Um, that, that has come in at the wide receiver position either via recruitment or via transfer because um, you haven't really heard anything from him the last couple of years. But here's Rob Likens saying he was our best wide receiver on certain days. That includes Nikhil Harry. That includes Jalen Harvey. That includes John Humphrey and Ryan Newsom. Now that's something I think that you can you can take and you can be excited about or you'll find out it's a situation where uh, it's possible that Rob Likens was maybe in, inflating um, his player because he he comes off as the type of guy who really loves his guys. But at the same time, to say something like that, that he was the best player out there, with some of the talent that Arizona State has at the wide receiver position, I would consider that to be uh, extremely encouraging with a player that some had all but written off as, as being completely buried. Um, another one of the interesting interviews uh, up on devilsdigest.com is a Q&A with Rob Sale, offensive line coach. Um, you know, he, he's a pretty intense guy, and, and, and he definitely brings a different flavor uh, than Chris Thompson. But... Uh, one of the things that I really liked was, you know, well, this is a much maligned offensive line unit blamed for some of the struggles that Demario Richard and Kalen Balaj had blamed uh, for Manny Wilkins spending some time running for his life. Uh, but, but what was interesting about this is um, he, he took the opportunity to say that th- this isn't all on the offensive line. Um, that the offensive line, you know, can't be blamed for all of the struggles that Arizona State had last year, and and you know there there were quite a few, and you know basically, basically the the way that he put it was you know this is on the quarterback they need to make the right read, uh, the running backs need to hit the right hole. It as much as fans believe that it's the offensive line every single time. It's not, and and he was pretty un, unequivocal about it. He, that. This offensive line has the potential to do some really big things. He is especially had high praise uh, for Sam Jones for Cole Cabral. Um, he, he said that it's he's going to take it as his personal responsibility to unlock the potential in in Zach Robertson. So I I, I highly recommend that as 
uh, a, a very interesting interview. Um, you'll also catch ones with TJ Rushing, Keith Patterson, and John Simon. So make sure to check out devilsdigest.com. Um, th- those those were definitely well worth the read this week. Some of the other things uh, I found interesting that popped up in, in media, not necessarily uh, even local media, um, would be the SB Nation preview of Arizona State football. Uh, I, I think enough research went into this that it would even make Joe Healy proud. Uh, but the title of this article from Bill Connolly was Arizona State's Todd Graham can build coaches, but what about a program? So, I mean, immediately off the bat, the question you know becomes what has he done here and is it enough? He's a great groomer of talent. There's an endless list of people who have coached under him who have gone on to do great things. Um, but what about this program? And, and there were there were a couple of things, and, and this is up on SBNation.com. Uh, there were a couple of things that I found very interesting, and he got really, really deep into the stats. Um, and, and one of those was that, you know, the, the average, the average for a running back to make it at least five yards from scrimmage on any given carry in in FBS football is around 40%. Around 40% of your carries reach five yards, positive yards from the line of scrimmage. Uh, But last year, Kalen Balaj and Demario Richard were well below that. Richard gained at least five yards on just 29% of his carries and Balaj just 28% of his carries. So and while we just talked about Rob Sale saying it wasn't all the offensive line's fault, I mean, the, both running backs being well below average on on average carries making it at least five yards from the line of scrimmage is definitely telling that there needs to be some improvement in that area, that that's going to be very, very important. Um, you know, he, he, he was um, – more positive about ASU's defensive line, JoJo Wicker, Renell Wren, Deshaun Smallwood, uh, their front seven in general, including DJ Calhoun and, and Karan Crump. Um, but, you know, definitely, definitely tempered expectations as far as the secondary. Uh, but it, and, that, and that was before Kareem Moore left the program. And so um, it's, it, it's definitely an interesting. Uh, look at Arizona State from an outside perspective, somebody who's not up close every single day but did put a lot of great research into that. So that's something I highly recommend, and I'll, I'll link it in the, the, the post on devilsdigest.com that's associated with this podcast uh, so that you can give it a read. Um, one of the other interesting things I think that, that I read about in the media that came out this week um, about a week ago is is Pat Forty, who has a long, sordid history with Todd Graham, uh, or, or better put, a long grudge that he's held against Todd Graham from his days at Tulsa, um, was, you know, he mentioned some of the coaching staff uh, that has gone on from Baylor and out to different, uh, different programs across NCAA, and obviously one of those programs is Arizona State because they house Phil Bennett, the former defensive coordinator of Baylor. Um, more and more things come out from Baylor every single day, and, and, and you know, it, and basically anybody associated with Baylor, anybody associated with Art Bryles' staff, uh, whether it be Kendall Bryles, uh, Art's son, um, or, or Phil Bennett, for that matter, or, you know, Liberty, 
uh, hired athletic director Ian McCaw. Um, basically, anybody who's associated with that is is going to be called into question uh, repeatedly. Now, Arizona State struggled defensively. This is kind of a, pretty much a last chance stop, really, for for Phil Bennett. And nothing has come out that indicates that he was uh, either aware of or or had intimate knowledge of anything that went on at Baylor um, that was extra legal. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people are going to say, you know, how could you not know? Um, and those are legitimate questions that people should absolutely be asking. And Arizona State's really already had to kind of be on the defensive a little bit and say, you know, we wouldn't hire hired him if he didn't come highly recommended. Um, Todd Graham's had a relationship with him for a long time. He's considered, you know, uh, to be a man of great values, family man, um, you know, very religious, uh, very well known in the coaching circles. He's been around for a very long time, um, proven himself, you know, that his resume is, is long and, and, and perhaps the only, uh, negative pockmarks on it are the scandal, uh, that took place at, at Baylor, but at the same time, those questions deserve to be asked. These are student athletes. Um, these are students at college. They need to be protected. These are institutions of higher learning that should be in a situation to make sure that anybody who is involved is put in a circumstance where they can thrive personally and eventually professionally, whether that be in, in, in sports uh, or anything else. And, and, and frankly, at Baylor, people's lives got ruined. And there is nothing, no sport, uh, no fandom, no fanaticism that that is so important that it takes precedent over the, the health and well-being of a young person at any given institution uh, who trusted that institution to put them in the best possible scenario. And that didn't end up being the case. And so I feel like ASU deserves the questions, um, you know, the, and and they're going to get them from people in national media. And Pat Forty is just another one. You know, you can you you can take um, into account his history with Todd Graham, or you can you can let it go and 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 read it for its you know its value on its face. But the truth is, uh, these questions are going to come. But the hire has been made. Um, and, and as he pointed out, the, the statement that the Arizona State gave is all university employees are fully vetted through ASU's Human Resources Department on campus. Mr. Bennett was no exception, and they look forward to his contributions in, in, in the program. And I feel like Arizona State fans should also look forward to Phil Bennett's contributions, you know, if it continues to, to be uh, portrayed as such and be the truth that he was not part of some of the more sordid things that uh, that went on at that at that institution um, because he's a talented coach and he could bring a lot to the table uh, but obviously you want to make sure that what he brings to the table doesn't detract from the program that Todd Graham is trying to build to build build up young men who graduate who have values who treat people well uh, who make up for the fact that maybe they didn't have those things in their life before coming into Arizona State you know Todd Graham often talks about the fact that he was a young dad that you know he was raised uh, mostly mostly by his mother and still went on to play college football makes millions now coaching football um, that, that you can you can turn things around and, and you, you you want it to be a situation where people are taking 
taking advantage uh, of those opportunities. And hopefully Phil Bennett can be a part of that and transformational process for, for, for young athletes. Um, and, and, you know, and if that's not the case, then that's going to be egg on Arizona State's face, and that's just the way it is. Uh, but you can expect these questions um, from guys like Pat Forty at Yahoo, from ESPN, pretty much any time ASU is nationally televised and they talk about the defensive coordinator, they're going to bring up Baylor. This is a situation that Arizona State went into probably full well knowing that, and they believe that it will be worth it. And, and ultimately we'll see if that's true. Um, and as far as as far as that goes, that's pretty much everything that uh, uh, that I've been consuming over the over the last couple of weeks. Um, definitely, really excited uh, about the upcoming Speak of the Devils podcast, and I'll let Joe Healy get a little bit more into that when when he's on uh, up here in a few minutes. But first, uh, let's bring in Hode Rubino to talk about the departures, to talk about what Arizona State needs to do, if anything, differently in recruiting. Um, and 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 see who he might expect to step up and, and take over uh, some of these spots that are opening up due to departures from Arizona State's football program. Okay, so the only person that I would know to talk to if I wanted to know what was going on with several players just disappearing for Arizona State's roster is Devil's Digest publisher Hoder Bino, and he joins me now to talk about just that. So um, within within the last few weeks, we've seen several departures from the ASU roster, but um, none have been as hard-hitting as uh, the defensive backfield where essentially – you have a starting safety, a starting corner, and what would have probably been their primary nickel, uh, all leaving the program, one medically retiring, one pretty much just leaving football altogether, it seems like, and another one uh, headed home to play for UT Chattanooga. So uh, I guess, Hode, wh- I mean, what is going on? Is it time to panic? Well, I mean, realistically, when you look at it, even if you had all these players coming back, unit that uh, was back-to-back uh, years, the worst pass defense uh, unit in an, in an entire um, FBS uh, world. So, sure, uh, I mean, uh, there, there was uh, much concern even if he had uh, returning uh, proven players um, in the mix. But now that you don't have guys like Kareem Moore and Armand Perry anymore, uh, sure, the uh, concern level has been raised. One point I will make concerning that is that I don't think that uh, Phil Bennett, the new defensive coordinator, who has been very hands-on with the secondary the entire spring practice, and I expect uh, nothing to change in that uh, sense uh, in fall camp and beyond. I think that both him and defensive backs coach T.J. Rushing saw a lot of writing on the the wall. I know know for a fact that even going back to January, uh, both of them knew that there was a very good chance that Armand Perry would medically retire just because his body uh, gave in to the multitude of injuries that he suffered. Uh, I mean, that you. this is a possibility you talked privately with me about in early February, that, that he had had serious surgeries and that he might not come back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, um, everybody thinks about Manny Wilkins being the most battered player on the ASU squad last year, and Manny Wilkins was uh, uh, definitely... Uh, injury challenged uh, on, on many different occasions, but um, he was uh, definitely second to Armand Perry with the severity of uh, 
have something that uh, both uh, Phil Bennett and DJ Rushing knew um, for a good few months now. Um, and, um, I, you know, with, with um, Marcus Ball's medical condition, obviously it's something that uh, flared up, so to speak, much closer to spring practice. But, again, I mean, you're, you're going into spring practice knowing that um, somebody, knowing Marcus Ball is not going to be available, so you're preparing for life. Um, after Marcus Ball, so, um, if you will, when, when, when it comes to um, just having another player not in the mix. And, uh, you know, with Kareem Moore, um, you know, without going into too many specifics that were told to me off the record, um, I don't know if it came as a total shock when spring practice started that they may not, may not have Kareem Moore the 2017 season. So even though Kareem Moore did participate in the entire uh, spring practice, 15 game sessions. I'm uh, sorry, 15, uh, 15 practice sessions. Uh, still, um, that's another thing that was probably sitting in the back of their mind, knowing here's another player that we may have to prepare uh, for uh, playing without. So um, it was a daunting task before spring practice. Uh, it was a daunting task after spring practice when all these departures uh, became official. And um, they, those two coaches definitely had their hands full um, the whole time. Whether they want to say more of a challenge or less of a challenge without guys like Oren Perry, uh, you know, I guess that that could be somewhat debatable. But um, this is um, one unit that is definitely going to rely heavier than you'd like it to on uh, inexperience, if not uh, newcomer players to the team. And um, it's definitely one of those situations where. Um, you're throwing as much stuff as you can against the wall and, 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 and see what's going to stick. But you really can't blame the coaches for having that approach just because of the landscape um, of this defensive back unit. Well, um, wh- where there is a gap, uh, that means there are opportunities. So let's get into who might best be ready to take advantage of the opportunities um, that, that are available. There are certainly plenty of players who have yet to seize previously available opportunities, even with what you had said is statistically back-to-back years worst defensive backfield um, in all of the FBS. Uh, and some of those guys include Chad Adams, Tyler Wiley, uh, Jamarcus Rhodes, so, I mean, are, are those really names that we can depend on to make a giant leap forward? Or are we talking about some underclassmen and truly inexperienced players stepping up to, to become uh, starters and contributors in the defensive backfield? I think by default, you would see the more proven guys, and I, and I use proven probably pretty loosely because I don't know if you can call Chad Adams a senior at all, as a proven player. <laughs> proven as in been. proven as in they haven't left. <laughs> okay, but fair enough. Um, did Chad Adams have his best spring at ASU? Yes, he did. And, and that's not, um, you know, trying to uh, put a spin on a situation. That, that is just a fact. Uh, Chad Adams, if he, if he played a game today, would be a starting free safety. I think that is uh, absolutely not in doubt whatsoever. Um, does, does that translate into better production than what Amon Perry gave you? Uh, I think that's definitely questionable at this point. And again, I don't think that's being too harsh on Adams or anybody else uh, when you make when you make such a statement. But yes, Chad Adams is going to be somebody that uh, you are probably going to count on heavily 
um, at free safety, if not count him as being the starter at uh, free safety. Jamarcus Rhodes at the um, at the spur position. Um, again, probably had had his best showing since arriving to ASU. Granted, uh, was a junior college transfer last year, so you have less of a body of work to compare to for good or for bad. But Jamarcus Rhodes did, uh, by all accounts, did play pretty pretty well uh, at, at at the spur position. Can he translate that into consistency um, every practice, every game? Again, a, a huge question mark, but question mark uh, is really the operative term when it comes to the entire defensive back uh, defensive back unit over here. So, I mean, if I'm looking at all the positions um, at, at the defensive back, so it's Spur, um, you know, it's just a matter of is Marcus Ball, who is by far the most proven player uh, of the defensive back group, does he um, stay at the um, what used to be called bandit, now is now is called down safety position, or or does he does he make the move to spur a role if if everybody recalls is the role that actually started the 2016 uh, season at and uh, eventually had to switch with Mokiola just because it was a better fit really for both players uh, to be um, to be flipping uh, roles. So. Um, Marcus Ball um, at uh, down slash bandit safety. Jamarcus Rhodes uh, being the starter at Spur. Chad Adams being being the starter at cover slash free safety. Uh, I think that that right now is a plausible uh, scenario. Um, again, with Marcus Ball, when you talk about his medical condition, it did uh, flare up uh, when when spring practice started. Does it flare up in fall camp? Does it flare up in um, in uh, you know during during the season? Uh, that that's really anybody's guess right now. But as much as you can make an educated guess as to who the um, starters are going to be, then sure you have those three. If you go to the cornerback position, um, that's uh, definitely one position that you will see somebody who did not play uh, last year. And and my uh, money would be on uh, on Chase Lucas, who uh, redshirted his freshman year uh, to get stronger, to get more acclimated. Uh, not only not only to the college football level, but also to a position that that he never played at at Chandler High School. So I think reasonably you can you can pencil him in as one starter. The other starter would be uh, Maurice Chandler, who um, effectively backed up uh, Chase Lucas in the spring while Corey Moore was still on the team. So uh, so Chase Lucas and uh, Maurice Chandler are more than likely your two starters, or at least the the players that will line up with the first team on that very first uh, full camp practice. Now, um, as far as uh, players that uh, can make a charge um, onto the starting positions, well, if we stay at cornerback, um, Alex Perry, um, Armand Perry's uh, younger brother, uh, is definitely a strong possibility uh, to uh, mount some kind of charge um, on the starting position. At the very least, he'll be in the two deep. Uh, ASU, as we know, uh, signed three junior college uh, defensive backs um, after uh, National Letter of Intente, and two of them are definitely going to figure in the mix here, and uh, Kobe Williams and, uh, and, and Darian Cornet. Uh, you have another um, uh, true freshman, uh, Langston Frederick, uh, who, who I think uh, months ago was probably maybe the shoo-in to be the player to actually retro this year, even with all the question marks you have at the position, but now, um, you know, somebody that uh, could have a chance, and maybe if he beats one or both junior college transfers, uh, will we'll, we'll now be in the two deep. So, um, so definitely, um, you know, maybe just a little more inexperienced at corner than uh, than you have at the safety. 
and uh, it's going to be interesting to see if somebody like Tyler Wiley, um, who's a returning player but hasn't done much at the spur position, can he somehow uh, be the dark horse in this race and um, and assume uh, the, the starting spur position again, assuming that uh, Marcus Bull does stay does stay at the, at the down safety position. Um, you know, then you have uh, maybe intriguing possibilities with the converted wide receiver uh, Jerry, uh, Jeremy Smith who was backing up uh, Chad Adams at free safety, uh, definitely did not outplay him enough to win the position, but full camp, uh, you, you never know uh, which player can emerge or which player can regress. Um, you also have the really wild card in all of this, uh, two, two wide receivers, Kyle Williams and Frank Darby, that at one point or one or another in their ASU career actually made the switch to a defensive right. player, Frank Darby. And that Frank Darby has laid as late as spring practice, so, I mean, does... Do the ASU coaches call upon those two uh, to, to to reassume the to reassume the role on defense? And I think and I think both of them uh, feel very comfortable at offense right now, and maybe won't be too crazy about making the switch again. Yeah. So um, yeah, you, you really really have a lot of um, a lot of balls to juggle over here, and uh, and I think that uh, maybe the most um, exciting uh, true freshman out of the group, Evan Fields, he's somebody that uh, would definitely be. Um, a, a strong candidate for the for the down safety uh, and or the spur position, and who knows if he doesn't make a charge um, on the uh, on the cover free safety position. So um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 there's definitely a lot of um, a, a lot of uh, possibilities over here, and it's really anybody's guess who the starters are going to be. But again, I think by default, uh, when you can, you will uh, count on the players that have shown you. Um, some degree of experience, some degree of dependability, um, as as small as that degree may be. But uh, again, I think the lone exception at the starter would be somebody uh, like Chase Lucas, who uh, did not play it down yet for Arizona State. So it's definitely interesting times uh, with, the, with with the defensive backfield and uh, evaluation uh, is absolutely paramount uh, to make sure that you get the right mix of players over here, and that's something that I would just expect because of all the uncertainties to happen much later in full camp rather than the first week or two. Plenty of reason to stay tuned to devilsdigest.com. And I, I guess I would ask your personal opinion. You've seen a little bit of him. I've seen a little bit of him. He's a phenomenal athlete. If Kyle Williams was to be willing to make that switch, is he somebody that could challenge somebody like Maurice Chandler right off the bat for, for playing time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, could could make a challenge at corner. Uh, I think the coaches might like him better at cover free safety, so maybe more of a challenge to Chad Adams than to Maurice Chandler. Um, and really, also could uh, challenge Chase Lucas, I guess, for that matter too. Um, he he really is an exceptional athlete, uh, one of the fastest players by far um, on on the team. So he definitely has some of the prerequisites to uh, to play that position. But uh, but both both cornerbacks positions and the cover free safety. Um, are interchangeable positions in the ASU defense, even with Phil Bennett coming on board. That's still the uh, prevailing notion there. So, um, yeah, I mean, those are the positions that I could see Kyle Williams uh, possibly contending if he moved from uh, from wide receiver uh, to defensive back. And as always, uh, when you make those uh, player um, switches, uh, you want to make sure that you're not uh, robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, and um, I think ASU has a pretty pretty good nucleus right now at wide receiver, um, good enough of a nucleus that you would you you would re-entertain Kyle Williams and or Frank Derby as uh, the Derby making the move again to defensive backfield. Uh, 
that uh, that is something that's a possibility. But I don't think that uh, even Phil Bennett or TJ Rushing, uh, if you ask them in the interrogation room if that would happen right now, could could really give you a, a straight answer. I think that uh, that's just another um, bullet in the chamber, if you will, that uh, those two coaches have. But whether they actually go to that option uh, um, is something again. It's just the really, it's really, really anybody's guess. Well, Defensive backs, but bottom line is uncertainty is definitely the most operative word over here. Right, and and speaking of Frank Darby, uh, I had Woody Womack on last week's podcast. He talked a lot about the ASU's recruiting misses when they go to the East Coast and they you know they bring these players back, and obviously it hasn't been working out. DeAndre Scott is now at Maine. Robbie Robinson seems to be done with football. Uh, Jason Lewis is gone. Kareem Orr is gone. Daryl Middleton as a tight end commit never worked out. And that was somebody Woody uh, pointed out that, you know, if you were on the East Coast, you would know that that was a guy that those teams were staying, you know, that those teams were staying away from. And, and, and I mean, you do have Frank Darby and you don't want to mess with him so much that he, you know, joins uh, the legions of, of, of players that have, you know, flooded back to uh, where they came from. But uh, is the door officially closed on ASU as, as a national brand and an East Coast recruiting football school? I don't know if the door is closed shut. Uh, I mean, that might be, at least in my opinion, too dramatic a statement to make. But uh, I definitely think that Arizona State uh, has shown that they are going to concentrate more on California, and and you know, and, and I said this previous podcast. I don't think they really ignored California. I just think the landscape of the last class doesn't really lend itself to recruit California as hard as uh, other classes. And I mean, with with them recruiting Cal or, or an increased focus on California, um, is that something that you you think would would suit them better as far as just getting players to not uh, be in situations where they're homesick and 1,500 miles away um, from home. I'm, I'm guessing uh, that, that you know, there's an obvious answer to this, but, you know, I, I'm just trying to put you personally in a situation uh, where, I mean, is, is there somebody that you blame for this, or is this just the way that it worked out as far as getting players from the Eastern time zone and having them all sort of not work out? Yeah, I mean, I think that with the makeup of the Arizona State staff, uh, when they came in with a good contingent of coaches that did not have the uh, West Coast ties, I think you were really forced uh, to look at Texas, to look at Louisiana, because, let's face it, uh, the bread and butter of the recruiting uh, forte of uh, some, some of those coaches were actually rooted in those areas. And then... Um, you, you, you could you could venture um, even east of Louisiana, for example. I don't think it was a bad idea at the time for Arizona State to do it. I know the results um, are not bearing themselves out as as you as you would expect them to be. But um, you know, I mean, a lot of people will claim that we just look at a you know business social communication perspective that our world is shrinking uh, just because uh, of how developed how developed uh, the internet and online. Um, tools are so um really coming from the east coast of arizona these days um is not that big of a deal for lack of a better term than it was just 10 15 years ago um but but i think would it serve arizona state better to concentrate on california texas obviously 
obviously, obviously your backyard and the four corners. Uh, sure, uh, I, I think uh, I think that goes without saying. I think the resources uh, that you spend uh, would in those areas would definitely yield higher dividends than going to somewhere like Louisiana, let alone um, on, the, on the eastern on the eastern seaboard. So, I, again, I don't see I don't see the uh, door to the East Coast um, closed shut, but uh, is it um, closed enough to have a pretty uh, slim crack in it compared to just one, one or two years ago, yeah, I, I, I think that would be um, a, um, a, a definitely reasonable statement because when you just look at the makeup of the team, um, you're just not getting that many players east of the Mississippi. So the resources uh, in that region of the country should really be used sparingly and never, ever uh, come at the expense of a state like Texas or a state like California, let alone your backyard. That makes sense. We'll we'll just call it for right now. We'll call it the curse of Josh Dobbs, and maybe Frank Darby's the guy that breaks it. Being from New Jersey, maybe he's the one that, that that comes in and makes a big contribution. But essentially, it feels like they're really trying to capitalize on the goodwill that they built with Jalen Strong. And like you said, ASU is a national brand. Their partnerships with Starbucks, ASU Online, the advent of Twitter, and being able to connect to these players all the time. It makes sense that you would try to get the best available players. But at what point does a trend become something that you pay? attention to as fact or something that's just a repeated anomaly so i appreciate your thoughts on that and and it will remain interesting until all of the pieces are in play and and then that's when the season comes and we see how they perform stay tuned to devilsdigest.com hode is as plugged in as anyone and uh, and and he'll 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 take us to the dramatic conclusion of what the lineup will be and whether or not they can perform and what that'll mean for the the staff in general so thank you so much hode for being on no problem, Ralph. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, now that we're we're up to speed on who might be playing. Uh, for Arizona State um, when they do line up. Uh, I, I think it's important that we know who they're going to be lining up against uh, and, and, and what to expect uh, in some of Arizona State's competition. So uh, we're going to bring in Joe Healy from Speak the Devils podcast, staff writer for devilsdigest.com, research guru, uh, to talk a little bit about what Arizona State has to look forward to in their 2017 schedule. All right, and first time on the podcast in three years of doing this, we actually have the Joe Healy from Speak of the Devils. Uh, there's there, there's uh, no more name synonymous uh, with uh, analyzing, calling ASU football, being around ASU football than Healy, uh, I would say, in, in, in my time tracking the program. So it's an absolute honor to have you on, Joe. Hey, it's my pleasure, and I'm like a fraction of 1% of that, that legacy that's attached to the, the Healy name and ASU, but you know what, I, I grasp that 1% with a great deal of pride. I absolutely would as well, I absolutely would. So uh, let's let's jump right into some of the news that, that, that came out today that didn't involve uh, anybody leaving the program, <laughs> and uh, that's the, uh, the first couple of game times were released. Um, for Arizona State, and it looks like they're going to open up on a Thursday. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, New Mexico State on a, a Thursday evening. I think that's the 7.30 kickoff, and then at 8 p.m. the next week. 8 p.m. the next week, and that'll be... Is that... that... San Diego State at, at home in Tempe, yeah. And then they head to Lubbock after that, correct? Yeah, but I think that one's a, 
was, you know, I guess that'd be at 7, 7 p.m. Central for the, the folks there in Lubbock. So we, we get into the idea that football players are creatures of habit, but there really is no habit when it comes to uh, scheduling. It seems to be all about what the best time is that, you know, that, that they can get you in a slot and, and get the game televised. Um, you are the absolute king of research, and I don't know if this is something that you've looked into before, um, but do you feel like historically there's, there's any credence to the idea uh, that ASU um, does better in certain time slots playing on certain days? Or, or is that maybe kind of a myth cooked up by, by people who are disgruntled and just want their routine football schedules? Right. I mean, there was some research I did a couple of years ago, um, and I think this was for the Washington State game in 2014 because it was a real early kickoff. It was like an 11 or 12 o'clock kickoff, and, and that kind of focused around the, the super early ones, the ones that we see here, you know, maybe once every couple of years around that, that noon time range, and I think that was uh, a little disadvantageous for ASU, but obviously that's, that's a pretty uncommon thing. Um, you know, when it comes to these evening games or, or that sort of thing, I mean, it's pretty much your hands are tied if you're in Tempe, Arizona in early September. I mean, it's never going to be anything earlier than 7 o'clock. So I think it's kind of uh, splitting hairs to be disgruntled about 7.30 or 8 o'clock knowing that it's, it's just not feasible for it to be any earlier in the day. So as far as any sort of you know trend or anything like that, um, you know, it's tough to really put it in a, in a full category because, of course, some of these early Thursday games are, are a different beast than, like, playing Utah last year on a Thursday where, you know, there really isn't a comparison between uh, New Mexico State and a uh, conference and division foe there. So, again, those first two games, you really are, are left with no other options unless uh, some donor were to dump a, a few hundred million or something like that to, to get a, a dome with air conditioning. You're stuck with that 7 p.m. or later slot in September. So, Thursday games. Now, it's it's got to be a lot more advantageous to everybody involved uh, to be opening up the season on a Thursday instead of having that fall smack in the in the middle of the season, uh, much like much like the Utah game, um, because you know football players are creatures of habit. Sometimes it follows a bye, uh, sometimes it precedes a bye. But if it's in the middle of the season, it can throw your routine off. These are still college kids. Who take classes, but I don't think anybody ever has a problem getting up for that first game of the season. So would you say that it's probably a little bit more advantageous to have that Thursday game be so early? Yeah, I'd have to imagine so. I mean, I know a lot of the feedback that you'll see is just the fan reaction and the ones who, you know, may not want to have to ditch work early to get to the game or, you know, potentially miss work on the Friday, depending on how much they enjoy the game. That sort of thing, but yeah, from a uh, from a player's perspective, I'm, I'm sure that that's the case. And of course, they're going to be chopping at the bit. So just to get things started a couple days earlier than those who are going to be playing on that first Saturday of game. Though I think there's actually a few games the previous Saturday. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you get a, an extra couple days to prepare for for that next team and, and for ASU schedule. That second team is one they can't uh, underestimate. So that'll be a helpful thing too. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about the way that you approach your coverage of, of Arizona State is that there's not there's not a lot that you bring to the table that isn't backed by a, a hardcore research session. Yeah, you know, where where you really break down 
all of the moving parts of, of, of what could be uh, what could be going on in any given scenario before you reach any concrete conclusion. Uh, and, and I think you really brought that into your uh, your early previews that you've put together of, of some of ASU's out-of-conference and in-conference opponents this upcoming season. And if you haven't, uh, you, you need to be on devilsdigest.com. Um, and, and I know I've spent most of my May reading uh, the previews that you've put together. Um, can you talk just a little bit about what goes into your research, your research process and, uh, and, and what you're looking for when, when you, you look at these teams, um, you know, prior to them ever going to fall camp or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing is just kind of uh, taking the perspective of a football fan, you know, uh, and, and I guess the consumer as well. You know, what would I uh, want to learn about? What would I want to read? What uh, would I want to see? Especially if I'm, uh, you know, paying for a membership to, to a subscription website such as uh, Double Digest. Uh, also kind of put on the hat of uh, I spent a couple years interning in ASU's media relations department when I was in school and, and learned some tricks of the trade and, and, and that really helped me kind of dive into you know, some significant numbers and, and, and trends and things like that to look for. So And I've just kind of always been like a, a stat geek when it comes to stuff. I mean, my dad will tell you that I, I was doing box scores on uh, Bulls versus Lakers on Sega Genesis before they like kept stats in video games. I would write them down on a notebook piece of paper and do like point averages and stuff like that. So that's always been my kind of thing. Um, now, when we're breaking into uh, you know the ASU coverage, um, it, it's really just kind of analyzing what's gone and in, in, in this sort of context as far as previewing uh, the teams. You know, who, who are these teams losing? You know, who's coming back? What are some of the things that they've done historically and recently to kind of give an overview, especially of those non-conference opponents that, that, that ASU – uh, may not play too frequently, like New Mexico State. Uh, it's a very forgettable game. It was the better part of two decades ago, and it was a loss for ASU. So that's something that some of the fans don't see them too often. May not watch them too much if they're on TV. So just try to, you know, provide as much education and, and the trends and things like that, so that when folks are are reading these, that they take a little something out of it that's kind of different from your norm. You know, as far as returning starters and statistics and things that are fairly basic in nature. Try to. You know, differentiate something something a little fresh to read so uh when when you you know you've gone through you said you're working on uh usc right now and people can expect that on devilsdigest.com soon um but you know i i spent some time reading your washington preview your 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 oregon preview your stanford preview uh what are some of the things especially about the in-conference uh, opponents what, what are some of the statistics that you uncovered that really stood out to you i, I know that for me personally there was one that kind of involved the experience that Washington is bringing back on offense that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, with the amount they're losing on defense, they're probably still going to be able to hang offensively. Yeah, so if we're specifically talking about Washington, uh, and I think this is a theme that, that resonates with some other teams as well, is that fans should not assume just because a guy like John Ross has gone and become the first-round pick that they're devoid of talent at that position or on the offense as a whole. Um, so basically, you know, kind of the one that, 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 that I came up with on some research was kind of that 30-10-10 type of rule, in, in, the, in essence, where Washington has uh, some players coming back that uh, have Jake Browning throwing for 30 touchdowns. Uh, Dante Pettis, who I think is the heir apparent to John Ross, is that huge big-time playmaker at wide receiver, had over 10 touchdowns. Uh, and uh, the, the running back, Miles Gassian, did so as well. So, I mean, that's, that's something that I believe is unprecedented uh, on an on a FBS scale in terms of returning players for 2017. So, once again, if you think that a team like Washington 
is going to slump with the playmakers because you lose a guy like John Ross, uh, I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the case. Now, is there anything that, that stood out to you? Uh, I guess I'm asking what has surprised you the most that you've uncovered in, in your research as you've gone through this. Uh, was there any, any team um, that you, you kind of expect to slump, but based on what you've read and uncovered, uh, you feel like they'll be a, a, a lot stronger than expected, or are there, are there teams uh, that you feel like might slip a little bit? You know, one team, because I, I feel like a couple years ago, I learned not to underestimate Utah. Uh, you know, after they had that couple years of slumping, earlier in the stretch in the Pac-12, then they bounced back. I think they've won, you know, nine games, ten games each of the last two seasons. Uh, so I was kind of thinking of them as a team that, that every year is going to be able to compete at that nine or more win level, uh, even though they may not be able to quite hit, completely contend for the division title for whatever reason. But looking at, at the players that they lose, um, they were in, in the very top, I don't know the previews here in front of me, but they were one of the, the most productive programs in the country in terms of uh, NFL draft picks in 2017. Um, it, you, I think they lose virtually their entire line. Other than one returning lineman, I think they have like five career offensive line starts or something very small of that nature between the rest of them. Um, so that's something where they lose uh, quite a bit. Uh, Joe Williams was an incredible story last year, and he's gone. Uh, you know, you also lose Hunter Dimmick, who single-handedly dominated ASU. So I, I think I was just kind of assuming that Utah would have uh, enough talent, or, or maybe just didn't know that they lost that much. I think that's a better way to put it. And the result of this research is just not really connecting the dots to see, wow, they really lost all these players. I and mean, you remember some of the, the key guys, but not necessarily everybody. So Utah, that's that's an interesting one to me. Um, you know, looking at a team like Oregon, and and it's 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 a tough situation to call, and it's something that a lot of teams face where they they return a great deal of players on offense. I think something way more than 80% of the starts from last year. But they're, you know, they're, on defense, rather, but their defense was not very good to begin with. So is returning players a good thing, or they get the opportunity to develop? So it's a, a, kind of a, a, a tale of, of two options there. Um, I mean, those are really the things that stand out to me. Um, I have not necessarily been under the belief that Washington is going to take a massive step back. Uh, I don't know that they'll be a playoff caliber team, but I think they're definitely a 10-win caliber team. So uh, the research that I've done doesn't really change that at all. Uh, and, and Stanford's one of those teams. Again, I, I think if I had to give another bullet point, it would be the what I've learned from the research is that there are a lot of star players that could be replaced by some potential star players. Uh, that applies to San Diego State losing the all-time leading rusher with an asterisk, unless you're on Dan, you believe his theory. Uh, Donnell Pumphrey, the running back they have coming in and, and replacing him, who got a lot of reps, uh, and was an incredible back in his own right. Uh, Rashad Penny is, is very talented. Christian McCaffrey, uh, they have Love there up at Stanford, who's very talented in, those, in his own regard. And then, uh, once again, Dante Pettit, uh, filling the hole of John Ross, similar kind of player, super athletic, very explosive, huge uh, potential just for, for long touchdowns and big plays, whether it's on special teams or offense, to fill that role as well. So I think some of the huge star players that are either record-setters or first-round picks, uh, there might not be a massive drop-off for some of these teams. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that Christian McCaffrey uh, conundrum that, they, that they're facing. But Stanford's a team that's returning both tackles in A.T. Hall and, and Casey Tucker, who 
um, are right here out, out of the state of Arizona and headed up to Stanford. And, you know, that, that could set uh, anybody who's stepping into that role up for, for a lot of success. Uh, so would you say that Arizona State is looking at, a, based on your research so far, a harder road this year than, say, last year? Or would you say that um, that it really depends on how some of these other players step up? Do you, do you kind of get a clear feeling on whether or not this could be a harder road? It's, it, it, it could be, and I think it's more along the lines of the, the schedule itself. Uh, because you could see ASU being favored or having a solid shot in the first three games and the last three games and then the six games in between, that's a tough stretch right there. And obviously, uh, you know, if, if you're going to lose a handful of games, then that, that makes the ones thereafter that might have been favorable uh, a, a lot less appealing there. Um, so, it, it, But there is some factor of, of it depending. You know, a team like Utah, it's tough to tell. Colorado is another team that, uh, that folks might think are going to take a big step back. They lose Jim Levitt and virtually everybody on defense, but they have a lot of firepower coming back on offense, so they could be a team that's kind of switching gears and becoming more offensive-focused. The X factor for me is just that ASU has completely forgotten how to win on the road, um, and, and you have a fair amount of games that, if, if you look at it without knowing whether it's played in Tempe uh, or on the road, you think ASU has a good shot, but, but if the Sun Devils continue to struggle on the road, that's going to take some of those games that you want to try to mark off as wins, put those in the loss column, and that's how you get a real, uh, uh, real dissatisfactory outcome to the season. You know, games like it, like a Texas Tech, potentially a Utah, UCLA, and Oregon State later in the schedule as well. So you've got a big episode of Speak of the Devils coming up here in a few days. Um, why don't you give our listeners, who are pretty much all of you know, probably a small subsection of, of, of your listeners, but why don't you give the, the people who will be listening to it uh, in, in a few days a little preview of what you guys have coming up. Yeah, so uh, virtually just about every offseason we try to put together kind of like a special episode that may not necessarily be focusing on the, you know, the breaking developments with the team. So, so a little spoiler alert, we're not going to necessarily focus this episode on, on the departures like uh, Armand Perry and, and Creemore and that sort of thing. Uh, sometimes in the past we've done specials like the 1996 team or certain position groups or decades or things like that. Uh, this year's going to be a little different. It's pretty timely and, and, and pretty called for, in my opinion. It's basically our State of the Union in, in major ASU athletics. We're going to cover some things that we normally don't and, and, and in some cases really have never covered. So we're going to discuss football, baseball, and basketball, and we're going to have some, some great input. So far, uh, we, we have some... I don't want to necessarily jinx it because we haven't arranged everything, but we've got some great folks that are on, on board to, uh, to join us, give us their input, uh, some very uh, seasoned and respected voices on the Sun Devil, so that'll help as well. We're basically going to analyze each sport, see where they are now, see what the future looks like, and, and if they need to make a massive change to be able to get to a brighter future. Uh, obviously, the, uh, the baseball team has been under fire, and rightfully so, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, the football program is kind of in flux in terms of knowing the long-term future of Todd Graham. Basketball's in a different situation, uh, but we kind of are going to look ahead and think of what the program needs to do in these upcoming years as Bobby Hurley gets more experience. And, and when you get past that point of thinking about the future potential and knowing that the time has to be now. And then obviously we're going to tie a bow on that and talk about the athletic department as a whole because uh, the, this whole baseball program fiasco is the best way to really describe it. Um, 
has caused a lot of folks, whether it's on Twitter or message boards or other social media, to uh, really criticize Ray Anderson in a way that I don't think that he has in, in any way, shape, or form close to received since he's been here. And they just kind of talk about the, the direction of the athletic department as a whole and, and kind of where they are with things. And again, similar to the sports, if it's something that has some sustainability. Well, Joe, I, I really appreciate you being on. And Joe Healy pairs with Brad Denny for the Absolute Premier Podcast, uh, all things ASU Athletics. Speak of the Devils. Make sure you're subscribed on iTunes. Uh, leave a review. Continue to support them and what they do. And we're both lucky enough to be affiliated with DevilsDigest.com where you can check out Joe Healy's previews uh, dating all the way back in, in May. He's, he's six or seven deep right now. USC is coming out. Can't wait to read that. And thanks so much for coming on, Joe. Thank you very much, my friend. Appreciate it. Absolute privilege to have Joe Healy on the Devil's Junkie podcast. Uh, and then this next segment's going to be a real treat. And buckle up because it is long. We're talking about 40 minutes with Justin Toscano uh, of devilsdigest.com. Also writes for Sports 360 Arizona. Young, talented. Uh, Fabian Ardaya vouched for him. Um, you know, and Fabian, somebody I, I respect a, gr- a great deal, and, and Justin has proven again and again and again that he's going to be a fantastic reporter, and he's somebody who followed Arizona State baseball all season long, and it's been an interesting season. Uh, he's also somebody who spent some time uh, listening to Bobby Hurley answer some questions today, so we'll bring in Justin Toscano to talk some basketball and baseball, and it is interesting, so stay tuned. All right, welcome for the very first time to the Devil's Junkie podcast. Justin Toscano, who does great work uh, for Devil's Digest as well as uh, currently interning at Sports360AZ.com. Uh, great friends of mine, and, and, and I'm happy that uh, they have an opportunity to, to work with him and help mold him. He's, he's young, he's talented, he's up and coming, and he's got some information for us on ASU basketball and uh, and, and basically the down low on what's going on with ASU baseball. So, Justin, we're excited to have you on. Hey, how's it going, Ralph? Thanks for it. I appreciate it. Well, I'm, I'm just excited to be talking to you. Um, you know, there, there's, there's no postseason baseball to talk about, and so we might as well talk about what happened in season. But first, let's get into, uh, you know, you were at the Bobby Hurley Presser today, and, 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 and some video of that is on devilsdigest.com up in the forums right now. Um, what, what was your impression? What were some of the things that stuck out to you about what Bobby Hurley had to say today? Yeah, well, the probably the biggest thing was that last season ASU really struggled because of its lack of depth and its lack of size. But Bobby Hurley's main point in this, you know, the presser today was 40 minutes, and a lot of that was spent talking about how those two issues have now been addressed. He feels that there's a lot more depth, whereas the Sun Devils can play a more traditional lineup with a couple guards, you know, two forwards, and have a big man inside, and he feels that the size, too, with those guys, you have Romello White returning, Italy Shybell, according to Hurley, his recovery and his rehab from that torn ACL is going as expected and is going very well, so you're going to see those two issues improved upon, you know, according to Bobby Hurley, in this upcoming season. I remember last year, I think it was the UCLA game. Uh, starters, ASU starters played all but one minute, and that lone minute came from Ramon Villa, who just subbed in, was in for a couple possessions, and came right back out. 
Bobby Hurley said he's never had to do anything like that in his career. He's never seen anything like that in his playing and coaching career. But he said that that luckily will not be an issue in this upcoming season. As I mentioned, they do have they're going to have Shybell back, and they have Ramella White, and then they also have Trey Holder and Shannon Evans, two of the Pac-12s top five returning scorers that are going to be back. They do have Cody Justice, as well as Remy Martin, the guy from Sierra Canyon who, you know, a lot of people know about because I think it was last summer that ASU got his commitment, and um, and he is, should be a really good, energetic guard. And with him, Bobby Hurley thinks they can also push the pace not only on offense, but on defense and pressure the ball a lot more as opposed to last year where they had to conserve that energy. So a lot of what you know, I took from it was what's been improved upon. And obviously you've had the transfer market, Rob Edwards, the guard, transfer guard, and they picked up a commitment from Zylan Cheatham, who transferred over from SCSU, as well as Carlton Bragg, a former McDonald's All-American high school and a five-star and a guy who Hurley watched at AAU events when he was in high school and was very impressed with. So those guys obviously all have to sit out a year. But Bobby Hurley said, and I think the word he used was war, is that practices this year are going to be a war because last year they had Mickey Mitchell who had to sit out because of transfer rules. The year before they had Shannon Evans who had to sit out due to transfer rules. And now all three of these guys, Edwards, Cheatham, and Bragg, are going to be sitting out this year but are really going to be helping the team because they get those valuable practice reps and they're going to be pushing the other guys. Now, I, in your opinion... I- and, and maybe Bobby Hurley addressed this as well, but, you know, sure the team is deeper, but they also have to replace the scoring of Torian Graham and the heart and rebounding of Obi Aleka. Uh, is, is that something he feels like Mitchell and Scheibel and White uh, can combine not only to, to replace but to improve upon? I definitely think that he feels they can, repl- they can replace it, and with more options, I think that's where he feels is going to be the biggest improvement. Last year, Obi Oleka, you saw it. If he got into foul trouble early, ASU was just decimated inside the rest of the game. He played with a lot of heart, as you mentioned, and Torian Graham scored a lot of points. But I think they're taking comfort in the fact that with Trey Holder and Shannon Evans, they have two of the Pac-12's top five returning scorers, as well as two career guys who have more than a 1,000 career points in their collegiate careers. And I think that he believes... Mickey Mitchell, who Bobby Hurley has been admittedly pretty high on throughout the past year when he wasn't able to be on the court for ASU, and now to have him available sometime in December, I think he said, as it looks now, that he would probably be available for the Kansas non-conference game to start that big home-and-home series. But I think this is something he feels can be improved upon just with the sheer Options. He said Romello White is a guy who loves to rebound, and he chuckled after that because that was obviously a big problem. You know, Obi Oleka was pretty undersized, I think listed at 6'8", 6'9", but that was pretty generous for, you know, for him because he looked a lot smaller and a lot more undersized than a lot of the Pac-12's big. So I think having a guy near 7-footer like Romello White and then a guy like Bidley Scheibel in there is going to help ASU a lot just by giving them some rim protection as well in addition to the rebounding. So I think Romello White specifically can fill that role of hustle, heart, rebounding that um, Obio like it did as well as fill in some on the offensive end because he's said to be a pretty skilled guy there once he gets to be a bit polished and you know once they figure out what they can do for them there. And the other improvement 
when you look at losing Torian Graham, that's pretty scary because Torian Graham obviously had a couple off-shooting nights last year, had that one for 14, I think it was, and that abysmal you know, loss to Stanford at home in the middle of the year. But I think one thing that's going to be improved upon is that with the big guys inside and more options there, Bobby Hurley talked about more space for Trey Holder to work, more space for Shannon Evans, more space for Cody Justice, more time for Remy Martin, more space for those guys to really work off the dribble, which is where they excelled. And if you look at this team, even in some of the losses, the loss to UCLA at home, the loss to Oregon in Eugene, really carried by its guards and big performances from those guys. So hopefully spreading the wealth a little more is where it's going, where you're going to see the most improvement in this upcoming season. So that, I mean, ultimately that was my next question was, was does he see any potential improvement from the players that, that he has returning? Because I, I've always personally felt like you pretty much see what a college basketball player, a good college basketball player has to offer um, by their third or fourth year, either their junior, true junior or redshirt junior season. And so, uh, but but he feels like Cody Justice, Trey Holder, and Shannon Evans could be even more effective through things opening up. Not necessarily that they would become better skill players, but that their skills would be put to better use uh, with some size and depth. Mm-hmm, exactly. And that's, that's really the key is that this is their last year, all three of those guys. They lose all three. And they'll plug Remy Martin into that starting point guard role, hopefully. I mean, a lot of people thought Sam Cunliffe would be beside him, but that became, you know, a distant memory after 10 games. But they're hoping, and, you know, 2018 is going to be where they really go after the guards. You know, they have to recruit guards to fill those three guys' slots after they leave the program. But really, while they're here, then you're absolutely right. The biggest improvement is going to be giving them more space to work, utilizing them in a lot better fashion last year Cody Justice really struggled and Bobby Hurley admitted that this was maybe his fault a little bit that Cody Justice really struggled off the ball and he felt that you know he when he got more touches he was more effective and you really saw that throughout the year because in um, 2016 or yeah 2016 20 or 2015 2016 Cody Justice was on the ball and handling the ball a lot more than he was last year just by virtue of Shannon Evans you know, still sitting, having to sit out due to transfer rules. But if you look at, in referencing your point on seeing what a guy has, you know, by three or four years, that's absolutely what happened with Trey Holder. I think that he's going to improve a lot more in this fourth year, but I think that second to third year, he took a huge stride because in the middle of last year, we saw him not only be the facilitator that we all knew he was, but we saw him his finishing ability improve a lot, getting into the lane and taking guys off the dribble and actually finishing those tough layups and the floaters. And I think that that's going to be really important this year because if he has even more space to do so, then that's all the power for him. And Shannon Evans is the guy that Hurley has really lauded ever since he came into the program as being a spark and being a guy with so much high energy that I think um, you saw him hit his stride throughout the year, notably in that game at Eugene where he had a career high in points and in finishing out strong throughout the year. But just giving those guys more options to work with on the floor in a more mm-hmm. traditional lineup where you don't have to play four guards is absolutely a positive, especially in the Pac-12 where you've seen a lot of influx of talent and so much parity in the league throughout the past few years. 
You feel like Hurley's feeling some some pressure to to make the tournament in year three, or is this still uh, seemingly kind of a, a four year project where he's gotten his guys in, he's been able to recruit at a high level, and as long as as long as they take what they have right now and, and they put themselves in a position to at least have a winning record, maybe go 500 in the Pac-12, and then really look at year four as that year to to make that leap, or or is it all about? 2017 2018 right now i think it'll be about 2018 2019 in the capacity you talked about it's feeling the most pressure but i do think there's some pressure this year too because bobby hurley feels with those options and the added depth and the added size that asu can be a tournament team he said that he definitely can see that being a possibility in their future and he said you know he said it all year last year and he said it today is that they were really one or two players away from being a pretty good team that contends for, you know, an NCAA tournament berth last year. So, you know, this year with the added options, even though they do lose Torrey Graham, they do lose Obi Oleka, it's going to be tougher, but they also have, you know, the influx of size and more depth, and hopefully those guys can contribute. And Hurley was actually asked about whether or not he was feeling the pressure of, beating U of A for the first time. Obviously, he hasn't beaten U of A yet as a Sun Devil coach. And, you know, a lot of, throughout the years, ASU has been, you know, kind of stunned U of A a few times, especially in recent years before Hurley at Wells Fargo Arena. And Hurley just, you know, not by his fault. In my opinion, it's not his fault. He, you know, his teams were undermanned against the U of A teams the past couple of years. But I think, you know, when he answered that question, he said it's nice to beat U of A and the fans care about it, the players care about it, the alumni and that, you know, the entire ASC community cares about it, but it's really about making the postseason the bigger picture. So I think he thinks that this team has the possibility of doing that, but when he answered that, he wasn't too sure. He said, I, you know, I think they have the potential that we can be there, you know, we can be there, but I think... In terms of a make-or-break year in the process, I think it's going to be 2018-2019 when you get a guy like Rob Edwards finally getting to play. You get Zylan Cheatham, and Ramella White will have one year under his belt. Remy Martin will have one year under his belt. Hopefully you can recruit a guard or two to come in and fill the holes of Holder, Evans, and Justice, but with the revamped front court that you'll see in this year and then in 2018-2019 when they get even more guys in that have had to sit out due to transfer rules and they get Carlton Bragg in, I think that's going to be the make or break, you know, did this process work here? I, and I'm glad Bobby Hurley's being realistic about about the in-state rivalry because obviously it is nice to beat Arizona, but at the same time, while ASU is improving talent-wise, Arizona might actually be fielding the most talented team they've ever put on the floor uh, go, going into next season. So uh, I, I think it's a fair trade-off that if you drop those games to U of A that you can still turn around and be competitive in the Pac-12 and possibly make the tournament. Appreciate you talking about uh, Bobby Hurley's uh, press conference today in the state of ASU basketball, but I think the thing that, uh, that, that I definitely want to hear from you about and, and the, the thing that people need to hear about is what's going on with, with ASU baseball. Obviously, a uh, very long winning streak broken this year. Um, 
Coach Tracy Smith not necessarily on the hot seat within the administration, but as far as the fans and the vocal fans who, you know, who get on social media, and I'm not sure whether or not those fans represent the donor base or not, but definitely the people that have an opinion have been expressing it on social media. It's been contentious. You've had some player defections. Um, you you have been tracking ASU baseball as much as anybody. Uh, you you know even breaking news uh, on it. Uh, recently and so you know you're you're definitely the go-to guy for this so I mean let's get into it um this season uh you know maybe mentioned as a rebuild there are people that say that ASU baseball doesn't rebuild they just reload um but but from your perspective and from what you watched up close where are the holes on this current ASU baseball team and what are they doing to improve yeah and the the biggest hole there. You know, there are a few of them. The biggest hole was in the pitching, though, and it all started in mid-January when, um, or actually not even mid-January, I think it was December 31st might have been, or December 30th might have been the exact date, but um, right before New Year's, news broke that uh, ASU Baseball relieved pitching coach Brandon Higlin of his duties, and now we know that Higgy has since gone on to Arizona and will be playing in the postseason, so you know, all the better for him in that situation. But Tracy Smith really talked about taking that dual role as the pitching coach and the head coach and being excited about it. He talked about that all year. And then there became a point where people just weren't seeing the results. And you could tell that he obviously had faced the heat for the pitching staff not developing. And he said, you know, when my my mindset is that when something's broken, I try to fix it. And from my perspective, I think that's a good mindset to have, but I've always questioned the timing of that move and relieving Brandon Higlin because doing that, you know, less than a month before the season and only a couple months before the first game was slated to be, that shows me that you thought that, you know, that Tracy Smith thought that Brandon Higlin was deterring from the staff's development. You know, if they would have left him in there, I personally believe that, you know, there maybe there wouldn't have been any improvement, but there wouldn't have been a huge drop-off just because you have someone dedicated to being the pitching coach. It's obviously hard enough to be the head coach of a college baseball team and run the program and run the recruiting and do everything else. And, you know, adding the duty of being the pitching coach is something huge. And you saw ASU have a huge drop-off there. It all started with kind of Zane Strand having a, pretty good outing but then getting hurt and having to have Tommy John surgery and then Spencer Van Skoyek a notable freshman lefty didn't have a great year he was actually my pick to be one of this year's surprises Eli Lingo's a junior lefty had a pretty good year but was still inconsistent in spots and that was really the story is that this staff was super inconsistent especially starting rotation Ryan Hinks a guy who started as the team's number two starter was then relegated to the bullpen a few weeks in and then never got out of that role and didn't even pitch a ton there. But they just did not have any options. Other than Connor Higgins, a sophomore lefty, who was very, very solid and you know coming out of the bullpen this year, ASU did not have very many options there, and it hurt him. I think, personally, and I wrote about this in a column I had a couple weeks back, that I think... If the pit, you know, you can look at the hitting statistics and the on-base percentage dropping every year that Tracy Smith has been here, but I think that if this team had a pretty good pitching staff, that they definitely would have won 30 games at least. 
they'd probably be in a regional because we forget that last year Seth Martinez was the go-to guy and the number one starter. But other than that, there was a lot of the same inconsistency that riddled ASU as it did this year, but the team still made the postseason. And I think better pitching this year would have done that and would have put them over the edge. Maybe they wouldn't have been a good team, but I think they would have at least won 30 games and at the very, very, very least not had a losing record. So that's something that's foreign to ASU folks. And if you look at what Tracy Smith has done in bringing in uh, Carter Alzaretti, a good infielder, and bringing in Hunter Bishop, a great freshman outfielder, and Lyle Lynn, a fantastic freshman catcher, and pulling in the number one recruiting class even after ASU got smashed in the draft, which is, you know, every ASU coach since the beginning of time has had to deal with getting smashed in the draft with, you know, those high school kids. But, he's, you know, he deserves credit for that. On the other hand, I was talking to a former player who told me that, you know, when he came here, he didn't even know who Tracy Smith was. It was just such a split second decision. And I, you know, ended up asking him, like, is it, you know, is it something Tracy Smith does with recruiting? And he said... You know, it's just ASU. The name speaks for itself. Guys come here regardless of how the team is that year. Guys come here because they want to get to the next level. So credit Tracy Smith for the recruiting or don't credit him for the recruiting. You know, you can go back and forth. But um, I was talking to a separate former player who said, you know, was talking about this year and said the team just, you know, wasn't good. In a recruiting class, when you have, you know, freshmen actually starting, you know, three or four freshmen in the starting lineup. Um, that former player told me that, you know, you're only, you know, you're usually only going to have one or two good freshmen a year. So it's, it's a little much to rely on three or four of them in your starting lineup. And we saw Tracy Smith go to those guys and use them heavily in that starting lineup as the year went on. Andrew Snow had, I think, uh, junior Andrew Snow had, five errors, I think it was, in the opening weekend, the opening three games against Northwestern, and then was really in Tracy Smith's doghouse after that. You could make the argument that, yeah, if you're going to be a defensive liability, you belong in the dugout and on the bench and, you know, shouldn't be out there. But I think the team really could have used Andrew Snow's experience and his bat throughout the year in the lineup, and you just didn't see him out there. I don't know if that was an indictment on him or if that was Tracy Smith trying to get his guys more playing time, you know, the guys he actually recruited more playing time. But you saw that, and that's, that's also where things went. If you don't, you know, they had, they fielded a freshman shortstop, Carter Aldretti, for a lot of the year. A lot of, you know, good contending teams you'll find don't have a freshman shortstop or even freshman middle infielders. That's, those are tough positions to play. And, you know, especially when you're making the adjustment to college baseball, and it seemed like throughout the year, ASU mm. just kind of lost steam, especially because you mentioned how, you know, you talked about how good the Pac-12 is. Oregon State, I don't think anybody's going to be running through them in the postseason. Stanford, national seed. Uh, Arizona, even, is a very good team, an offensive machine. This just was not ASU's year. But on the other hand, I think there could have been steps taken, you know, i.e. the pitching situation and some of you know, the lineup and how that went and some of the departures. Without those, I think this team definitely is middle of the pack and not, you know, they, if, you know, in perspective, ASU just won eight conference games. They were 8-22 and 22 in conference. And, you know, they were tied for last in the Pac-12. 
and Washington State was above them, and Washington State was swept by ASU and only won 10 conference games themselves. But this is a really, you know, you see ASU fans freak out, and you think, you know, it's probably for good reason, in a sense, because they've never seen anything like this. I know you have been following ASU a long time and have been covering ASU a long time, and this is just something that's unheard of with the baseball program. Talk about the basketball issues or football issues or down years here and there, but baseball is a sport that most ASU fans and Sun Devil faithful can really count on. Right, it's, it's been dependable. It's been dependable, and, and, and why you're right. I think for, for people who are you know onlookers or reporters or anything like that, I think for the very first time you're experiencing uh, dissatisfaction in regards to really the, the big three and the one that is the most you know dependable. And so uh, some of the criticism that Tracy Smith is getting honestly comes out of a, a lack of satisfaction with ASU men's sports. Um, in general, but at the same time, it sounds like, you know, I kind of let you go on there for a while because it, you, you, like I said, you were up close to it and, and, and you, you, you bring a lot of value and perspective to the table, but it sounds like what you were describing, um, was a lot of things that you said that if had they not gone on, ASU might have been in a better situation, middle of the pack, maybe 30 wins, but a lot of the things that you described ultimately feel self-inflicted yeah and that's see that's I, I appreciate you pointing that out because that's kind of the issue here is that you know hindsight's twenty twenty. you can look back on any season any sport any team and you know see things that went wrong if you didn't win a championship or had a losing season you know things go wrong all the time but the pitching coach self-inflicted you know didn't work out I've always questioned the timing of that, not just because you know, not just because of the end result, but I questioned it at the time because I knew the pitching staff was probably going to be inconsistent again because of there are so many young arms throughout that staff that I felt that you know a legitimate full-time pitching coach was needed. And then the departures, uh, the day that they had three in one day, that Saturday game against Stanford on May 6th, and then that, that week that had made five total departures. Tracy Smith talked about those as being normal. You know, after finals week, he talked to guys about their standing with the program, and he goes on and says, you know, if I were a parent, I would want to know my son's standing with the program and, you know, how, you know, if he's wasting his time playing. But two of those pitchers, Chris Isbell and Zach Dixon, were guys – I mean, Zach Dixon was the Sunday starter last year as a freshman and threw a complete game shutout in his first career start. And Chris Isbell also received time last year and was this year. So, you know, that I was, you know, that tells me that if guys maybe, you know, they maybe they didn't have the best experience there because if guys would have had a better experience, that maybe they would still be playing for the team even if they couldn't travel or you know even if they didn't pitch a ton. And so that. It feels self-inflicted, especially because I've personally I've tried to give Tracy Smith, you know, some of the benefit of the doubt. You know, you can talk about your process. It's really unfair to not give college coaches more than two years to or two or three years to do their thing with how the way recruiting cycles work. But I think when Tracy Smith said that the day of those departures about them being normal, and then the last weekend of the year against Arizona talked about the team being 
undermanned and shorthanded and stuff. It's kind of you feel like those the, those those are like, conflicting messages. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so that's, what, that's I mean, what a lot of the fans are mad about. And and one of the reasons that the the fans are are mad is you you actually have another issue that might essentially be uh, self-inflicted in that Tracy Smith was he he put himself out there as approachable, accommodating, and accessible. And accessibility, it, it, you know, it, it, it's unorthodox in the way that he handles his social media. But at the same time, if you're winning and you're recruiting well, you know, those things become uh, a badge of honor or so, something that, you know, other people uh, might model or, or would call a breath, breath of fresh air. But when you're in a situation where you've made yourself accessible and then people have complaints uh, and you know, and and there are people around the program uh, who who are also uh, rather accessible online and and sort of voice their complaints. It creates a really interesting situation that then people can look to and say, uh, this unorthodox thing that you do um, is one of the reasons that you're losing because baseball is very traditional and it makes people uncomfortable that you have a coach doing something that that not a lot of other people do and not a lot of that stuff is kept in house and you know he talks trash and he replies to people which for me personally on an entertainment level I think is fantastic but I think what you're you're also seeing from the fans is you know you're you're seeing that hey you made yourself accessible now I have something to say to you uh, and, and people don't always go about things the right way. They tweet, you know, out of a state of emotion, or they really care for the program. A lot of those people are getting blocked, and uh, on on social media. And and uh, what you're seeing is uh, kind of a chasm forming between the ASU baseball fan base, at least the 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 ones that are vocal in the online forum, and the actual coaching staff. And this isn't really something I've not only not experienced at at ASU, but haven't really seen social media be something that drives a wedge between a team and its fan base um, in this way before. Would, would you say that that's something that is uh, affecting this team negatively, or is that just one, uh, something that's kind of been added on as a frustration because they're losing? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's affecting the team, you know, on-field play, but I I mean, it's definitely an add-on, but, you know, because winning – Winning solves everything. Winning fixes everything. None of this stuff had come out. None of the, you know, there were, weren't as many, not nearly as many. I think there are six or seven departures total this year. If you count Daniel Williams being dismissed before the year and then the five uh, departures that one week and then Sebastian Zawada leaving the team to play independent baseball. This is something I'm not sure if AC Baseball has ever seen before and certainly not in Tracy Smith era because they were winning. But on the social media side, I mean, I don't know. I want to get your opinion on this because to me, midway through the season, when all this, you know, they'd really, they'd really hit a bad part, and it just kind of fell. It fell apart. They hit a band, you know, they hit a wall, and it fell apart. And I noticed that Tracy Smith actually wasn't tweeting as much. And not only was he not tweeting as much, he the first couple years he was here. I don't mean to analyze Twitter too much, but I think it's interesting. That the first couple of years he would hear, he or he was here, he would like or favorite almost or retweet almost every reply he got, and he would do Q and A sessions and he would do all of this. And now he's just not doing that much because if he did a Q and A session, I can't even imagine the questions that would flow in. And you did mention a good point earlier 
in our conversation where you said, you know, I was talking to somebody in the athletic department too, and they said the same thing as you did, is that these, these donor, you know, these people in the board they use was trying to get retweets on Twitter aren't, you know, usually aren't the same ones who are actually donating the program and who are actually looking to foster the improvement of the program. I'm not sure if that's true. I'd have to look into that. But whether or not that is true, you know, they have a big hitting facility that they want and, you know, using booster money to get that is going to be important and having donations for that is obviously critical. But, I, you know, it would be interesting because if, if a lot of these people on social media are a lot of the ones donating the big bucks, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure if they are. I don't know that for a fact. I don't know if they are or aren't then it would seem like there's a huge wedge, like you said, between the program's coach and the program, which is not good because it seemed like Tracy Smith was a lot more well-liked and appreciated at ASU in his first two years, and people are really starting to get frustrated with him this year. And that could show, you know, if those people on Twitter reflect the donor base, then that's a really, really bad sign for ASU because if you're Ray Anderson, uh, you, you know, he, Ray Anderson has supported Tracy Smith and per Jeff Metcalf of the Republic has said that Tracy Smith will be back for a year four in 2018 if he has a couple more years left on his contract. But, I mean, if you're Ray Anderson, you know, at what point if either season tickets aren't getting renewed or donors stop donating money or you can't, you know, get this new batting cage or hitting facility or you can't make improvements to your facilities or the program or get more money for recruiting and that booster base is just going to withhold the money from you that's a serious issue especially for college baseball and where you know the coach like you talked about has been so accessible that's a huge issue I think some of Tracy Smith being so accessible I think it's great like I loved it when I came here and started covering the team I thought it was fun I thought he was a great personality I, you know, I, I still think it's great that he did that that he tries to foster that relationship with fans and people who support the program that he's talking trash to U of A football when, you know, ASU beats them or ASU loses, you know, I like, you know, I'm, I'm all in for the spirit and kind of right. the spirit of jostling with people over Twitter. I'm, I'm all for that, but I think he's really, it's really seems like he's backed off of that now and it, it kind of, right. kind of eerie. Well, I would say this. I would say that losing has put him in a place where he's not really able to be himself and be the guy that he wants to be. Um, you know, and, and he he's either going to get into a situation where he things do get better and and this this rough patch fundamentally changed who he is and he will never become that accessible person again or he's going to be in a situation where he's able to kind of come out uh, because you know people aren't shelling the beach anymore you know and 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 so uh, it, it really remains to be seen but you you won't see uh how he chooses to act from here on out if there isn't some improvement um within the program and and one thing that I would I would add is that you know saying that you know the people who tweet things to get retweets very dismissive way to put it but the people who tweet things to get retweets 
um, at the program, you still have to understand that baseball, while big at Arizona State in general, in comparison with college football, in comparison with college basketball, is still a really niche sport. You're people who care enough to follow the program, be fans on Twitter, um, engage with the coaching staff, actually go to some games, know more than two or three of the players' names at any given time. Um, They are rare as as far as uh, those people existing within the spectrum of college fandom, they definitely, even at ASU, even where baseball has a great history, don't measure up to just basic knowledge about basketball or basic knowledge about football. So I would say that disenfranchising anybody who has that type of a relationship with your program might not be in your best interest, regardless of whether or not they're contributing any money to the program because those people I, I would feel like even if they're haves or have nots travel within the same circles uh, just because people who care that passionately about ASU baseball it's just not it's not a large group it's like me being from Wyoming chances are I know somebody who knows somebody else who's from there you know one degree of separation at most so these people who are fans of ASU baseball go out to the games get in forums talk ASU baseball they're on devilsdigest.com you know chances are they've been places where boosters are they know each other the spectrum of opinions can't vary that widely where you you have one group that's solidly behind the program and one vocal group that isn't so i think ultimately it spells trouble but the 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 one last question that i have for you um is you know we're, we're starting to hear people uh say trust the process which is kind of a, a reference to the sam hinky uh strategy of you know tanking games while at the helm of the 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 Philadelphia 76ers so that they could build up a talent base, get good draft picks, you know, and, and over time it's slowly starting to work in their favor. The difference is baseball in college is not the same as basketball in the pros. Losing doesn't get you better draft picks. It can only ultimately negatively impact your ability to recruit because like you've said ASU is a place where baseball players want to be. You can only really take away from that. You can't get better than it currently is, and in order to get better than it currently is, people would have to miss out on drafting some really good prospects, and they would have to fall into ASU's lap. So you can't get better. You can only really get worse from here. So when you say trust the process, what does that mean? What ultimately does ASU have to do to improve? Because if you look at the Arizona Diamondbacks, which would be a solid point of reference for any baseball fan that's regional, uh, they have pretty much the same roster as they did the previous year. One or two key differences, but the manager seems to make the difference in, you know, being a being a 600 team versus a 400 team. Um, so what exactly is the process and what should people be trusting in? What is ASU progressing toward? How, how on the current track that they're on right now, can they get back to where they were and continue to improve? Yeah, no, that's that's actually a really good question because I feel like every time I tweet something about baseball or a baseball score, an ASU baseball score, it's quoted with the hashtag either trust the process or correct trajectory, which are two things that Tracy Smith kind of has loved to throw around in this rough year. I think in any college sport, you have to wait for the coach to get his kind of his guys in there, his recruiting cycles and get get a few of those going to see if he can really recruit if he can what he can really do and the weird thing about asu is like we talked about earlier is that players want to come here so you really don't know if 
another coach who may be less of a recruiter but a better manager, you know, or better managing the team could do what Tracy Smith is doing. You don't know, but I think what's needed to improve is that he needs to get, they have another solid recruiting class coming in. And honestly, my one question for, you know, for him would be, I don't know why when ASU is such a big name in the West and in the country as a whole for baseball players, I, I really don't know why they keep going to the Midwest for pitching. I think, you know, if you look at the Stanfords and the Oregon States or the UCLA's, year in, year out, they usually have a lot of guys from California because California is such a great hub for baseball talent, you know, any high school talent, but pitching specifically, like, you see a lot of great pitchers come out of California. And so, I mean, that in itself, the pitching as a whole, but that might be a start. The pitching definitely needs to get better. Trust in the process definitely will involve kind of hoping that ASU, and this is all, assuming Tracy Smith stays, the process only starts to get better if they hire a top name and a top level, high not, you know, top notch, high level pitching coach to fill the void that they had this year that obviously really, really hurts. So you can start to get some development on the pitching staff and hold teams to under six runs a game. So, and then I think Next year will be a lot better because you build, you figure that you build around Gage Canning, who will be a junior and who will most likely leave after next season. But the guys that you had as freshmen this year, they turn into sophomores. Tracy Smith loves to say that, you know, the best thing about freshmen is that they become sophomores. And those guys are going to benefit greatly from the experience this year and all the resources ASU baseball has. In addition to the recruiting class that's going to come in, is, you know, no slouch on talent either. So I think trusting the process has to do with trusting that these guys who are going to come in, these guys who are quote-unquote skips guys, are going to make the change for this program. But, I mean, of course, that's all, you know, winning solves everything, like we've talked about a few times over this conversation. But I think a lot of fans are really concerned with what's going on, like, off the diamond and the departures and I think fans I'm not sure mm-hmm. fans will be able to move past that and you made a good point as to not disenfranchising those loyal fans who are on Twitter and who are you know tweeting a bunch and even if it's negative you know that you're right college baseball is more of a niche sport in college athletics that it's really valuable to have people like these and they do travel in the same circles so I personally don't think that um, there's too much of a gap between those on Twitter and those donating. I think that, every, you know, if they're following them on Twitter enough like that and going to games, I'm pretty sure they would be donating in some facet. But I think as a whole, trusting the process is going to come with trust in the recruiting classes. And that's what Tracy Smith means by that. And they're on the correct trajectory to getting his guys in there. And, you know, he was fed up with the chefs situation and he's said that before and fed up with different guys you know in different situations so he feels that and he said that the last week and that he feels like removing that from the program is going to put them on the correct trajectory but I also do really question if ASU baseball needed to rebuild if you look at when Tim Esme left you still have Colby Woodmancy you have Dalton DiNatale you have, and Dalton DiNatale got hurt once his junior year and never played again under Tracy Smith. That's when David Greer came to light, and many may remember that, but never never really played again. He was 
you know, All-American or, you know, bat, you know, hit over 300 his first two years here at ASU. Right. And then well, I would, again after getting hurt. I would interject and say you, it's okay to question whether ASU needed a rebuild in the first place, but it's definitely true that they are rebuilding now. And the only question then becomes who leveled the house? So, and, and even if that ends up being self-inflicted like we talked about, one of the interesting situations that has developed from this is that because they had a losing season, there are now more people paying attention to ASU baseball than there were previously because people aren't used to this and they're disgruntled and they want to see some action. So now all eyes are on ASU baseball and Tracy Smith has put himself in a very interesting situation in that if he can win these people back, which essentially means if they can improve and they can win games, then it will be one of the more interesting redemptive stories, I think, within uh, the ASU sports fandom uh, lexicon that you, that, you know, that, that you can draw from. And so um, uh, it'll be interesting. I know that you'll be there for it. I know that we can depend on you. I know you've got uh, some great stuff still yet to come on Sports 360 AZ and right here on DevilsDigest.com. So if you are out there uh, and you are interested in what ASU baseball is going through, uh, past and future, please, please, please tune in to the coverage that Justin Toscano will be providing for you. I really appreciate you coming on the Devil's Junkie podcast, and hopefully this, uh, this illuminates a little bit of uh, what went on this year and, and what people can expect. Really appreciate it, Ralph. Thanks for the time. No problem, man. And now for the part of the show where I take questions from the listeners. I got a few via Twitter and some of the Devil's Digest Devil's Huddle Forum, uh, and and we'll jump right into those. So let's go ahead and take the first question right out of the Devil's Huddle Forum from Santan Devil. Um, ASU's quantity of 2018 verbal commits, one, is quite low compared to the Pac-12 average. Do you think that this is a result of the lack of interest uh, commitment in in the form of offers from the coaches or a lack of interest um, in committing from the recruits? Um, this is a good question. Essentially, you're asking, uh, do, do I believe that the, the coaches aren't pushing hard enough or the recruits aren't being receptive enough to ASU's recruiting efforts? Now, I would say that ASU, um, ha- they have done quite a bit of turning over rocks to look all over the place for talent at various positions. They've offered quite a few offensive linemen, defensive backs, and tight ends uh, at the high school and JUCO level all over Louisiana, Texas, California, uh, a couple in Arizona. You know, they, they've been all over the place. They're putting in those efforts during the evaluation period. I was seeing tweets from different high schools all over the country thanking ASU coaches for coming out and evaluating their players. Um, this is uh, this is probably something that's more of a lack of uh, receptiveness from the recruits 
than it is um, the amount of energy that's being put in by the recruiters. Um, and I know that Billy Napier is somebody who puts a ton of effort into what he does. In his interview with Hode Rubino, he talked about, you know, his his sort of six hour uh, zone of of Southern California and and Arizona, and then the direct flight places that you, you know you get to from Northern California and Texas. Really refocusing on on what's close to here. And that's where most of the offers have been too. Um, but as Hode also pointed out in the forum on a separate thread, ASU didn't have its second commitment that really stuck until June of last year. So it's possible that things pick up in June and July. But Arizona State's definitely at a disadvantage numbers-wise as far as committed prospects. Um, and, and, and that hill gets harder and harder to climb every single day. The quarterback that they were most interested in, Cam and Cooper, just committed to Washington State. And so, you know, UCLA's got a bunch of players. Oregon's got a bunch of players. And, and, and it really falls to Arizona State to make a, a push to get some of the guys that were high on their lists and to beat out some teams and not to not to really be stuck taking players that they considered to be second or third tier as far as what they have on their board and what their priorities are. So right now it comes down to the fact that ASU absolutely needs to win. They need to prove that this staff is going to have some longevity, that they're not going to be gone within one year because all of those things and all that anxiety really plays into the hands of everybody who's negatively recruiting against Arizona State right now. University of Arizona is doing it. USC is doing it. You know, Cal with Charlie Regal there right now is doing it. You know, they're all saying – uh, you know, ASU staff is not long for this world. And when it, when a kid hears that, you know, unless it's somebody who's really committing to the school itself, you're, you're going to have a hard time convincing a player that um, you're going to have a really hard time convincing a player uh, to, to commit to a staff that might not be there. So um, some of this is self-inflicted, but ultimately, you know, comes down to the recruits need to get a little bit more comfortable with ASU staff, and 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 I think then you'll see them be a little bit more receptive. But if ASU struggles out of the gate, then this could be a really rough recruiting class for them. Uh, next question comes via Twitter, Brad Denny. What are your Valley Burger power rankings? Ah, I'm from Wyoming, and I'm not much into red meat. Uh, so I don't think Wyoming claims me. I've I've also never uh, shot a gun, which is something none of my relatives are are are, are happy to hear me say uh, out loud. I just never really had the opportunity. I've always felt safe. So um, uh, for me to rank burgers, it, I I would be completely out of my mind. Um, but I do I do like Chuck Box. Took my kid there for the very first time, and, and he likes it now, too. He had talked some trash about it, said McDonald's was better. Had to show him what was up. But even when I go to Chuck Box, I'm getting a spicy chicken sandwich. So not a big not a big beef eater for me to rank burgers. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, that would just be completely out of the uh, – I, I would have no business doing it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine talking about college football without ever having played college football. So obviously there's some hypocrisy there. But as far as burgers go, I'm a big fan of Chuck Box. And, um, and, and, and any time that I'm not getting the chicken sandwich there, you know I'm having a big one. Uh, all right, Jedi ASU. Question one, has any other program been trashed by injuries like ASU was in 2016? Funny thing about that is, if you remember, when ASU was 4-1, and one, 
one of the reasons that I gave for ASU being four and one was that they didn't have the horrific amount of injuries that so many other teams in the Pac-12 South were dealing with. And you have to remember that you know UCLA dealt with a rash of injuries. U of A had a ton of of injuries. You know they were alternating quarterbacks all year long. They had. Uh, several serious injuries take place. They've had several players have to medically retire. I remember Utah had a running back retire. They had one of their best offensive linemen, J.J. Dealman. They lost him for the season after just a couple of games. So it was a few games into the season last year when I was bemoaning everybody else's bad luck and saying ASU should, you know, knock on wood. And then, you know, it came to be that ASU ended up having one of the worst seasons as far as injuries um, in recent memory. But I, I don't I don't think that Arizona State was unique, to be honest. Last year and, and even the year before for a team like UCLA, you know, just absolutely devastated by injuries. And in UCLA, you talk about them losing Josh Rosen last year. Uh, that was huge for them. So there are definitely other teams that have experienced that run of bad luck. Uh, but I, I cannot take away from the fact that ASU's was was about as bad as I've seen. And his second question from Jedi, has there ever been such a non-death penalty exodus like we were having in 2017? Uh, I don't know if he's referring to, to basketball, football, and baseball because there have been quite a few departures across the big three. Uh, but I will say, if you remember Kevin Sumlin uh, at Texas A&M, losing both his starting quarterbacks um, before last season started, I would have to say that was one of the most ridiculous uh, player exodus situations uh, that, that I that I've ever tracked. And so I, I'll I'll put ASU's up there, you know, as one of one one that you definitely don't want to see. You don't want guys just leaving or getting kicked off the team and then never playing football again. Like they were never really in love with it in the first place. You know, the way that, you know, I think Bo Wallace stuck around ASU after getting kicked off the team and just went to school and, you know, and enjoyed life. I think Robbie Robinson, he might not stick around ASU, but I think he's probably done with football um, altogether. Uh, and, you know, you, you medical retirements and leaving to be close to home uh, are, are one thing, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I won't say that it's not bad. Um, but you know, it, imagine having two quarterbacks that you're, you're that the problem was that either one could really be the guy, uh, in Kyle, Kyle Allen and Kyler Murray and, and blowing it with both of them at the same time. So I, I would say that Texas, Texas A&M still has the trophy for me, uh, as, as far as none death penalty, you know, devastation of players just leaving. Uh, let's see. We've got another question from at Kale Lane. How will the loss of Perry and Orr affect camp and position battles? It'll make them interesting for sure. I mean, if, if you if you listen to the whole podcast, you know that Hoderbino had a lot to say about about who might play. I think you pencil in Chase Lucas uh, and and Maurice Chandler um, and and Chad Adams, obviously. But Chad Adams is somebody who I think could really be challenged by some of the incoming talent. And you never know. Chase Lucas is still newer to this. He's only really done it in practice. And Maurice Chandler, you know, showed that he was serviceable last year, but but didn't really seize his opportunity and take over. So, uh, I stay tuned. Stay tuned to Devil's Digest. Stay tuned to this podcast. Pay attention because it is going to be interesting for sure. 
Uh, Justin Pressigard at Justin for ASU on Twitter. Initial impressions from Valley High School coaching staffs on new ASU coaches and the communication level compared to previous coaches. <laughs> this is something that I think I'm going to get into on a future podcast perhaps next week. I'll try to have both Jason Mons and Sean Aguano on to talk about what their impression is about some of the ASU coaches that have come by. Obviously, some of the ones that they have established relationships with are still around in Keith Patterson and Sean Slocum and TJ Rushing. Uh, but at the same time, you have Billy Napier out there and, and, and you know, uh, Rob Sale obviously is going to be chasing some of these local offensive linemen. So I will uh definitely get at some of these coaches try to have them on a future podcast have them talk about some of the players that they have in the stable that we should look out for as well as uh you know mons and iguana would be perfect to talk about all of the news uh you know that's going on you know whether it's tyler mcclure congratulations earning a scholarship today or 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 bryce perkins deciding to transfer out of asu um you know it'd be great subjects for for iguana to talk about and obviously mons had three players commit uh, to Arizona State, so it'd be interesting to see what his take is on how he feels like they can contribute. And he's got a lot of players that Arizona State's looking at in the in the, in the 2018 and 2019 classes uh, coming up. So I will do my best to get a clear answer for you. As far as I know, right now, um, you know, you have guys like Napier and 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 Likens trying to establish a, a presence here and really get to know the area. And anytime you have that, you know, they're soliciting the opinion of these high school coaches um, more so than just taking for granted that they're around. So my expectations would be that there's, you know, as with any staff change, that there's a, a refreshing in the relationship and them getting to know them. It'll be interesting to see what their impressions of him are. Uh, let's see. Uh, at Lobo Jangles, seen any honest numbers on season ticket renewals and ticket sales? Can't be good. Know tons of people that dropped. Well, if you know tons of people that dropped, then you definitely know more than me. I would say uh, the group of people that I used to hold season tickets with, probably about 25 strong. We would go to all the games together. We did so for about five or six years. A lot of them are all in the same stages of life and all started having kids. And one of the rough things about, about having kids kids and with the way the Arizona State games are scheduled um, is, you know, if you want to bring your kids out to a game, uh, some of these games start past the kids' bedtime, and, and a lot of them would enjoy games uh, with their spouse, you know, and now either one person's staying home or they're both going to stay home. So there's a lot, you know, with the people that I used to go with that have given up their season tickets, there's just a change in life status and not necessarily it wasn't an issue with pricing or whether Arizona State was winning or losing because, you know, they were they were going through it for the thick, the thick and thin of it. And the thing that has really affected them has been the way that ASU games are scheduled and not necessarily being able to plan um, to be able to bring everybody to the games. And so, I, you know, I think that's been an issue for them. But if you know a lot of people who have dropped uh, their season tickets uh, due to the performance of ASU or their attitude about Todd Graham or, or anything of that nature or, or how the transition moving people uh, as the stadium takes shape was handled, uh, then you know more than I do. And it would be interesting for anybody who listens to this podcast to chime in to, to talk about what their experience has been with their season tickets and whether they're energized or whether they feel like whether they feel like moving on or whether they feel like TV is a better experience. I know that, you know, I, I had mentioned that the decrease in, in attendance uh, over the course of the last few years is something that has worried me greatly now that they're competing with television, um, you know, and, and several other factors. And, and, you know, I, I was, 
told, um, you know, by people within Arizona State that it's all to be expected and that they're, you know, it's it's a matter of the crowd anticipating what the capacity of the stadium would be. So it drops in accordance with what the seat removals are. And some of that I understand and some I don't necessarily buy. But, um, but it, you know, if you do know of, of, of any, you know, season ticket horror stories or, you know, if, if you've gotten season tickets and you're totally energized by everything that's going on at Arizona State, the coaching hires, uh, Blake Barnett as a transfer quarterback, uh, some of these players that are coming in on, uh, you know, in the defensive front seven, you know, then I'd love to hear about that as well uh last question at d swars uh what happened with or well he's he's gone so i guess it you know it doesn't necessarily matter it's it's next man up and and you move on but like i said you know i quoted an article of his hometown newspaper where uh where he had told them that he's expecting a baby in in, in august and and you know his former high school coach also said that he you know prior to last season had wanted to come home and while i have theories about Arizona State's East Coast recruiting and and how that's ultimately turned out and whether you know you should lump everything in together and close that door completely you know ultimately you do have to evaluate everything on a case-by-case basis and like I said from program sources tell me that or probably would have been on his way out anyway if he was homesick or not or had a baby on the way or not uh, and and you know that's ultimately that's ultimately on him but the reason that he's publicly given is you know, he's expecting a child, and you can't necessarily blame him for wanting to play right away, be at home. Um, this is something that Devontae Neal experienced when he was at Notre Dame and, and, and came to Tucson. And so, you know, from from that aspect, it's completely understandable, and I'm more than willing to take him at his word all with the ultimate understanding that it doesn't matter because he is gone. Um want to close this episode of the devil's junkie podcast with a shooting congratulations out to jordan simone uh in in his comeback from a major injury and and and, and kneecap issues following the rehab of that major injury uh to to get a spot with the seahawks for the time being not only is it cool that that jordan simone has an opportunity to play professionally in his home state of washington after a a, a long injury rehab um, but this also comes on the heels of the Seahawks also rec- releasing wide receiver Speedy Noyle. And if you remember Speedy Noyle at Texas A&M, this is a guy who had all the talent in the world and just mentally, you know, couldn't necessarily keep it together. He he has all the makings of an absolute star at, at the NFL level. Could be, um, I mean, genuinely has the potential uh, to do some Marshall Falk-like things. Uh, if 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 he was all there uh, mentally, if he was coachable, if, if you know if his personal life wasn't a mess, um, you know, and the Seahawks release a guy like Speedy Noyle and decide to hold on to Jordan Simone for the time being, you know, somebody who left Washington State, walked on at Arizona State, earned his role as a team captain, um, and and will probably go down as you know one of Todd Graham's favorite players to coach of all time. I. I have to say that, you know, it's not just that they're keeping him for right now and giving him an opportunity, but that it's a guy like a guy like Speedy Noyle had all the talent in the world and, and kind of squandered it away. It just goes to show you what hard work 
and dedication is worth and not taking this craft and this game for granted. He's somebody that I think all of Sun Devil Nation is, is rooting for unless you're a joint Cardinals and, and Sun Devils fan uh, and don't like anything that has to do with the CLC Hawks. And in that case, I understand. But but he's, he's somebody that I'm, 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 I'm rooting for and, and, you know, walk on safeties. Uh, at Arizona State, that you know they've got a history of making it big in the NFL, uh, is especially a guy like Adam Archuleta. And so, congratulations to Jordan Simone. Hopefully, we we see and hear some more big things from him in the future. This has been this week's episode of the Devils Junkie Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes. Keep it tuned to DevilsDigest.com. There is no better place for information and discussion uh, when it comes to Arizona State football and basketball and baseball. Um, thank you so much. This has been Ralph Amson, and we'll. Catch you next time. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh, Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town.